This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers, a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parents Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Okay, well, welcome back to Podcast 5. We are so excited to have a special guest today, uh, Tara McKenzie, who is a pediatric occupational therapist. I'm a huge fan of occupational therapy, and I thought it would be really important on Mainspring Wellness to introduce our listeners to what occupational therapy is and how it can help your children. Hello, Tara. Hi. Mm -hmm. How are you? Really good. Thanks. Thanks for being here today. It's great to be here. So, Tara, can you tell us what exactly is occupational therapy? I would love to. Um, Occupational therapy, um, in general, focuses on function and independence. It is a therapy, an adjunct therapy, that can help adults, children, um, people of all ages in helping them with function in their lives. Um, This could be due to injury. It could be due to something they're born with. It could be due to um, an emotional struggle of some type, Mm -hmm. but essentially an occupational therapist comes in and finds out where that person or child is struggling and tries to help them meet their maximum potential in their environment. That's Mm -hmm. a very wide range description. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm in the pediatric realm, but I really like to think about occupational therapy and in regards to function and independence. So what type of issues specifically for children do you see? So as a pediatric occupational therapist, um, most of the families that come to see me, I am in the private outpatient um, realm of occupational therapy. So I'm not necessarily treating children in hospitals for my own practice. Um, The children that I see often are born with some type of developmental delay could have a diagnosis of some sort. It could be a child with learning, sensory, or attention issues. It also could be a child who doesn't fit any of those boxes Mm. and is struggling in one smaller area, but it's affecting their function socially, emotionally, at home with siblings. It could be something as minor as a handwriting issue or Mm. a clumsy child. Um, So my practice ends up really getting children, a wide array of children, Um, And some even where it comes down to more emotional um, anxiety responses to their social environment. So could you give us a couple examples of a typical child that you might see that could really benefit from occupational therapy? Absolutely. Um, My background is in something called sensory integration. It's where um, I've practiced and trained, and it's really where the foundation of all my work comes from. The children that I see, um, typically I may have a child come in. It could be in between the ages of even 3 and 10. And the parent may be referred by the teacher, the pediatrician, maybe even a friend because they're struggling to function. Often a big one I get is at school. Mm. The child may look like a um, child who is a wiggly child. They can't sit and attend. Um, They may be disruptive. They may struggle with typical gross motor skills like controlling their body and space awareness out on the playground. 
They also might be a child who struggled to hold the pencil properly and keep up with motor skills such as handwriting in the classroom. I can get a wide array of these, but they often are these children that can stump pediatricians Hmm. and even stump their teacher, where the teacher says, I just can't quite put my finger on it. There's all these things going on. I know they need help with something, and sometimes that's where my job comes in. I tend to get those type of kiddos. Mm -hmm. I would say, too, that I might see children for therapy But I'll often think, wow, you know, cognitive therapy or trying to help them with their thoughts, it's not cutting it. There's something else that needs to address what they're coming in for. And parents automatically think psychotherapy or or play therapy, and that can be a really good therapy. However, to have a multimodal treatment, you know, where they're seeing other professionals to also address sensory integration or the restlessness sometimes that kids are feeling that goes beyond anxiety and what talk therapy can do, I think is really important, especially with children. Well, and I think you make a really good point. Children learn through movement. Mm -hmm. All of our children from a young age, they learn through movement. They learn through those first movements as an infant, whether it be to get the calming movement that they need or even um, when they're learning to feed as a baby and an infant, that's a movement. And then they get into the toddler and preschool years, and all of our preschool settings are set up for play and interaction and integration with their environment. They learn through movement again. So I think sometimes it can be, um, we forget this as parents, that so much happens with a child through movement. They're learning about the sensations in their environment, touch, sound, um, visual things that are coming in. So a big part of my practice looks a lot like play and has a lot of play in it, especially in the younger years, because children absolutely learn so much and get this huge, great foundation from getting all of their senses balanced through movement, play, interaction. So let's talk about sensory integration, because I think it's a topic that's widely misunderstood. And I was wondering if you could enlighten our audience a little more about what exactly sensory integration is and how we can... um, how we can see it in our own children if there is a need there that we have to address. Absolutely. If you really want to look at sensory integration, it's basically a term um, that refers to the way our nervous system responds to the environment. And oftentimes, um, and, and, and really oftentimes we as adults can recognize it as well. Um, children especially, though, because they don't have the cognitive, emotional spill, emotional and verbal skills to express it, um, There are inefficiencies in the way a child processes their environment. It may not be in every sensory system, but there are multiple sensory systems that I often look at when a child comes in. Um, The sense of touch, the sense of sound, the sense of, this is a huge one, proprioceptive feedback through their muscles and joints. Can you explain what that is, Tara? Absolutely. This is a big um, OT lingo word called proprioception. Um, Imagine when you first learn to drag a stick shift. This is like my greatest example. And how you have to figure out the way your muscles and joints move to move, um, to shift gears, push in the clutch, figure that out. That is your proprioceptive system at work. It is your brain telling your muscles and joints what direction to move, how hard to move, mm-hmm. and, and and really with how much force, correct? Mm-hmm. Because you have to know that. There is so much learned in a child's system through 
efficiency in the system. They learn how to how hard to hold the pencil, how to kick the ball, how far to jump when they're playing a game with their peers, or how far back and how fast to move when they're playing a game of basketball or soccer. Um, this system is so essential and so overlooked, I feel like, in development. It often looks like in a child, like a child that may move, even these children sometimes move too fast and rough, mm-hmm. or maybe they won't even partake because their system doesn't give them enough information to mm-hmm. know how to move in different environments. So mm-hmm. the proprioceptive system is a big one that I often see deficits in that's kind of overlooked. My daughter had proprioceptive issues, and we saw that in particular from like kindergarten through maybe even third grade where she would just kind of push on doors too too hard or her voice was louder mm-hmm. than what the rest of the room or how the rest of the room was, was speaking. She didn't really modulate and oh, understand. That's a term. Yeah. Door slammers, mm-hmm. cupboard slammers, <laughs> um, give brother a big old hug and it feels like a squeeze. It feels like a threat. Um, right. It can look like that. So even all these small things you're describing, um, these all affect a child's function and often really can come off as behavior as well. Yeah. yeah. I think also um, proximity to people too. Like That's she would often be like too close and mm. didn't really it's attune like to this perception. It's a perfect way to put it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like she didn't realize how close she was or how loud she was speaking next to your ear. <laughs> we call these children space invaders. Yeah. <laughs> close talkers. I have one Maybe. of those. <laughs> Absolutely. So you were talking about the other senses. So the other senses, and then we can't underestimate even the sense of smell and vision is a huge one, how our kids see their world. And I don't mean eyesight. Um, You know, eyesight and vision are different. Vision is the way your brain processes the information. Eyesight might be more the clarity in which you see your environment. Um, So all of these sensory systems, and the sense of touch is also a big one. All these sensory systems, we might look for inefficiencies in them depending on what the parent's coming in for feedback in. And the ultimate goal in that therapy is to try to normalize these sensory responses so a child can function in their environment more easily. So have you seen a rise in more sensory integration issues? Because you've been in practice for a while now. Right. Um, I've been in practice for 17 years, and this has always been kind of my specialty and practice. Um, I have seen a rise. um, I don't know if I would say I've seen a rise in necessarily sensory issues. I have seen them from the beginning really, really clearly, even from being a young therapist. Um, I have seen a rise in some of the emotional responses with these sensory issues and with some of the other motor issues. Um, I've seen a rise in anxiety, and that's kind of an interesting not to go too off topic, but I do think it's one worth talking about because children who have sensitivities, so these are the kids that may not want to interact in their environment because it feels uncomfortable. They want to keep uncomfortable situations at bay. Maybe it's in relationship to movement or touch or sound. These children have a lot more anxiety than other children because their bodies are reacting maybe 10 times more than mm. the little child next to them. Um, so I feel like I have seen a rise in some of the emotional responses in kids and in the current day and age. Why do you think that is? I think it's a great question. I think it's a couple um, I think it's a couple factors. I think it probably has to do with the answer to every other thing we hear today, which is children are in more activities. They have less free play time. 
to really explore and play. And instead, there's so many structured classes now, even from a very, very young age, where mm. they're kind of being told what to do. It's parent-directed versus child-directed. I think that maybe parents are a bit more anxious, which maybe Jenna and your practice, Dr. Flowers, in your practice you've seen too. Mm -hmm. But parents are more anxious um, on just how much is going on in the world and what they have to protect their children on. So I think it's hard not to have that rub off on your children in some ways. Um, but I also think that the even the academic environment is more intense now. So no matter where we're sending our school to day in and day out, the teachers have more pressure I mean, I took a nap in kindergarten, you know, and we, 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 there's no naps in kindergarten. And, um, I think that what they have to teach these kids and, you know, the pressure is on for the amount of different types of kids they have to deal with in a classroom, then that comes off. So I don't necessarily have a clear answer, but I think that that is something I've really seen increase in my practice. And then how do you think we should go about addressing this as parents? And I think. That's a great question. Um, This is where I think that children can't just talk through anxiety. You know, maybe not even diagnosable bursts of it, anxious responses. Um, It's a very visceral, physical response when a child feels anxious. And one of the things I've really been working on, I my practice has really evolved to treating a lot of children who struggle with this, mm-hmm. as well as children who struggle with even regulating their emotions in general, because emotional regulation is something very common in kids with sensory learning and attention issues. Um, but one of the things is I think addressing anxiety from, and I love your approach, um, multiple areas at home, through treatment and at school. One would be recognition. I do a lot of recognition of what happens to your body. We externalize. I might call it worry brain. We might say, you know, I think worry brain took over. What happened to your body when worry brain took over? Well, I couldn't put my shoes on. I couldn't leave the room. I got stuck. You know, once you start giving children language that's not so um, shaming maybe to them, but Mm -hmm. externalizes Mm -hmm. it a bit and puts it of something that takes over their brain, they start to be able to talk about it. And then they start to be able to listen to the visceral responses of their body. Obviously, really young children, this is a little more challenging and they need a lot of help from parents. But what I'm seeing is children that have more awareness of what's happening with their body and giving them tools then, language and physical tools. I don't know about you, but if you've ever went for a good run or walk after an anxious um, d- an anxious day where you've just been overloaded with anxiety, how releasing is that mm-hmm. for your body? I, I... And I think we forget that our children need those same things. Mm-hmm. So combination of language, tools at home, and it could be a combination of sensory tools, breathing, awareness, and um, you know, really looking at environment. What are we scheduling? What things are causing that anxiety? Um, So that's a long answer to your question. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you think sensory integration issues um, is something that children are born with, or do you think it's learned? That's a great question. Um, I would say the majority of the kids I see, parents have seen things from a young age, even as early as a baby, with um, calming, struggling to calm. Um, I see a lot more colicky babies. I see a lot more... um, Children that aren't as they'll go into tantrum mode in that you know infant toddler walking stage and not be able to calm as easy. I I I think that children are 
a lot of the more significant sensory issues are born with them. Mm. And um, for whatever reason, like parents will ask why, and they'll often go, you know, I had that struggle when I was young, but Mm. no one ever talked to me about it. Or um, it can be environmental when it goes to the more sensitive side, where I've had a family before where they were a completely quiet household. There was never TV. There was never music. Both parents were professors. They read all the time. They put their child in school, and she would say every noise, every st- – it was too stimulating. Our environment was so calm to go from this calm home environment than to a 12-child preschool classroom. It's too much. It was too much. Hmm. So I would say the majority I, I would see have kind of had these issues from a young age. Um, or the parents have seen these things once they pull it all together. But I have had a few where the parents have a really calm or maybe it's the opposite, you know, really chaotic. And it can kind of create some overstimulation or even understimulation mm-hmm. in ways. That's so that's, yeah, that's interesting. Understimulation and overstimulation. Could you speak a little more on that? And uh, how do we find the balance in our families? Absolutely. I think the first thing, anytime I've ever um, went and talked to parents before, I've asked them to kind of analyze each one of their children. And I mean, this is kind of a great example of like, how do they respond to like when you have 10 people over to barbecue? Look at each one of your children. When there's 10 extra people, there's music. Maybe you're having a party at your house. Maybe it's a birthday party. 10 extra people, music, more stimulation. Let's add all this stimulation to the environment. Look at your each individual children. Like I have three individual children that would all respond differently to that. Do you have any children that dread that, run into their room, start having meltdowns, don't want any part of it, struggle to warm? That might be the child that gets is over what I oversensitive to that environment. I'm not using the word stimulation, but oversensitive to that environment. Then you have made up the child that jumps in life of the party um, and and engages in it and maybe takes it too far, mm. where by the end of the party, you can't get them to calm down after the party. Yes. That can be another child. Um, so how do you balance this? I think you have to look at your child's individual needs and look at your own environment. You have to look at your family as a unit because you may not be able to never have a barbecue or birthday party again, but you can think about how you do that. Could we do just two families over and just, you know, or one family over at a time for the child that doesn't tolerate it as well and get them more comfortable with that? Um, Look at the activities you're in. Look at the pace you run. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's more to it, even more you can do than you think when you start to look and break down the over and under stimulation, do you have one child that needs more downtime? In our family, we do. We have to respect that. But we can't always stay home because we have multiple children. Um, So I always like to tell the parent to kind of maybe journal about each child and observations in that stimulating, how much downtime they seem to need, how do they do with transitions, Mm -hmm. how do they do during mealtime, how do they do with change even? You could look at. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about okay, the three of us here, Kristen, Tara, and myself, we all have three kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, you know, I, I know one in particular right now in my mind that I'm thinking he he's much better with a little more downtime compared to others. Like my daughter loves lots of stimulation, loves being around people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure each of you guys can even think personalities in your own, you know, kids and what best fits for them. So how do we strike the balance between what one child needs versus the other? Because in my mind, I would think we have to go to the child that has kind of the bigger needs 
of like less stimulation. Right. But then it kind of puts the other kids at a loss, right? Because they're they're missing out on what really makes them feel enlivened. Yes. And in my family, that can sometimes lead to resentment because we do have one child that's easily overwhelmed and the other kids get frustrated with her because they're they want to participate in whatever it is that mm-hmm. we're that we're uh, missing out on on account of of her overwhelm. So it can be very tricky to navigate. And even trips, I don't know if that comes up. We have a one of my daughters doesn't do well with traveling. Mm-hmm. So and we love to travel. So absolutely. I think that's a great question. And maybe this goes back to um, even to start before everyone's working. I love the concept of everyone's working on something in the family in Mm -hmm. general. I talk a lot to um, in my practice. I work a lot with families. I don't just work with children because, of course, as you know, um, this this type of treatment, you really need to have it all on board with kind of everyone in the family, at least some knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. Now, the siblings don't need to take ownership of it, but I always like to start from a, a basis of to create compassion and empathy is trying to everyone's working on something. Mm-hmm. You know, what all, what are we all working on? And having everyone really aware of it. Mom and dad are too. We're working on all working on things. So if let's use the example of the travel. Um, you know, our one thing our family does is we travel. Mm-hmm. And having the, you know, I love your family meetings before trips. How can we make this trip work mm-hmm. for everyone? I think the front loading, this isn't where necessarily like a therapist like me is going to fix that whole family dynamic. But it, you're right, it does affect the family dynamic. So trying to talk about it ahead of time as old as even as young as age four and five, you know, talking about what's going to happen and how we can meet the needs. And then I think having everyone on board with that there could be a few activities you do different things, you go different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's okay too. Um, there could be uh, an activity where the child who's more stimulated is the observer. I always say mm. there's nothing wrong with being an observer. I think me as a mom being a really um, active, engaged mom, I want everyone participating, but participating participation looks different. So maybe we can look at the activities and be creative in how our children participate. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're not a part of the family kickball game Mm -hmm. or the, um, you know, deep sea diving. We're not there yet, but deep sea diving. (laughs) Um, But they're more a different part of it and thinking about how we can set it up so it's successful. Maybe you're not the surfer, but you're the one on the sidelines just hanging on the beach, you know, reading a book. So I think that this is a great question. I'm not going to have the total answer, but I think ahead of time talking about this, Mm -hmm. especially on big weekends, big travel or big events is a great way to do it. And then if you do feel like your child doesn't have the bandwidth for that activity, Mm -hmm. I've had times where I've kept one of my children um, back and they were happy with that, Mm -hmm. you know, at times. Yes. And not, and that was what worked for our family. Yeah. Yeah. That, I I think the balance is really tough. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing is we have to address expectations. Right. We have to set correct expectations for our children. Mm -hmm. You know, what's doable, what's not doable. And then also find flexibility within ourselves as parents to readjust and feel okay about that. Yes. And maybe baby steps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a family who their goal is to go to a movie this summer. This child has really big auditory sensitivity, Mm -hmm. and they would love to be able to go to a movie theater, and the younger sister wants to go. And that's a goal for them, which it sounds like such a small one. Right. It's not. It's a big win for this family. So if we can try to think in really small steps for kids with sensory issues— 
or any type of motor, small steps are huge. Mm -hmm. And um, small steps of being able to go in that loud restaurant and not have a meltdown um, Mm -hmm. due to the stimulation and noise, being able to start at the quiet coffee shop and move up, you know. I've had families go really in baby steps, so I also like that idea. Yeah, that's that's really good. good advice. So just to finish up, when would you recommend uh, a family to seek out occupational therapy? I think that I think that as early as the preschool years, um, their little brains are developing at such fast pace. Um, if you're starting to see a child in the preschool year struggle in that preschool setting, it could be poor eye contact, um, picky eating, clumsy body. Um, not understanding the social schemes, maybe, um, maybe not participating or being too aggressive. Um, they could seek out excessive movement in this preschool age. They could even have difficulty transitioning or have sleep issues. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of sleep issues. So the preschool years, if you're seeing these things, I think it's worth talking to your pediatrician about. I think it's worth even just um, seeking out someone in your environment um, or wherever you're living who has a pediatric OT background, just talking to someone about it. Um, sometimes it may not be that every child needs treatment. It could be, you know, um, setting up the environment a bit differently. But I do treat children as young as, you know, the two and three. I get probably most of my referrals between the ages of four and eight. Mm-hmm. But I think these preschool years are you can, you can make big impacts um, because it is kind of most kids' parents, most parents are starting to send their kids to preschool young. So I think that it is start to be their, does start to be their first experience with preschool. Mm-hmm. Um, so early as preschool can be great. But also I have had, you know, 9, 10, and 11-year-olds referred to me for different reasons. Um, so yes, probably preschool age, I'd say, for an early referral. Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show today and enlightening us about occupational therapy and how our children can benefit from it. You're such a resource. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks Thanks for having me. Please join us next week as we discuss co-parenting with Dr. Jenna Flowers and her co-parent, Eric Flowers. Mm -hmm.